0: Candyland Candyland. Candyland.
1: Hey Veronica
0: Candyland.
1: Veronica you it's you're doing the wrong thing.
0: No 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 I I I got this I got this. I got this from this art show I went to. Candyland. Oh no, it's Mr. Monopoly. <laughs> Oh no. Mr. Mudap. Ow. He's he's, not clo- even- he's clobbering <laughs> me with his walking... Ow. Oh! Start the show, John. Start the show. Start the car. Toot <laughs> Now, this was great.
1: <laughs> not to in any way note your amazing opening, but first off, his name is Uncle Pennybags, or Moneybags, I honestly don't remember. No. And he's is from it... a different board game. I,
0: I know. It's Well, I guess this pre-faces pre- my
1: criticism of this movie. Oh, shit. Things sometimes oh, don't God. line up. <laughs> Whoa, she got her criticism in the opening. I just couldn't see it. The... Holy shit, everybody, welcome to Box Office Time Machine, I'm John.
0: I'm Veronica.
1: (laughs) I am so blown away by that amazing uh, uh, (laughs) save you did. Um, Welcome to the show, this is the show where we talk about the number one movie at the box office, either this weekend or weekend from the past. This time, it's a new movie again, we're talking about 2021's Candyman. Candyman,
0: candyman. If he has candy, then you can too. <laughs> no, that yeah. Kind
1: of yeah, that phase. Philip Glass wrote that <laughs> for the original movie, yeah.
0: <laughs> sorry, it kind of petered out at the end there. Um
1: Veronica, what is Candyman? Uh
0: Candyman is a vibe. <laughs> uh sorry. Uh, candyman is I guess now that I, so I've not seen the quote unquote original movie. I assume this was a remake, but it, in retrospect, it seems more of a continuation. All right, get the fuck
1: out of here, noob. A Candyman old head is going to describe this no, shit. No, let me do it. <laughs> no, go, go.
0: It's only fair. This movie should be a standalone movie. This <laughs> is... Part two of my criticism. I would
1: argue for the most part it is.
0: For the most part. Uh, But yeah, so it uh, is sort of a continuation of the Candyman of yore. uh, And it centers on uh, an artist uh, who is sort of in a rut. And so he goes exploring the old, uh, uh, I guess, projects that were in a certain Western Chicago neighborhood Uh, And he takes some pictures. He gets bitten by a bee and gets uh, introduced to the lore of the Candyman, who, if you say his name five times into a mirror, he appears and kills you. He proceeds to unleash the monster and shit happens. How about that?
1: (laughs) Well, like the condescending professor in the original 1992 movie, let me mansplain to your <laughs> your Virginia Madsen about the further backstory.
0: Oh great, are you gonna it with shadow puppets?
1: Um, That's only in the new one, Veronica.
0: <laughs> well, that was my wish. favorite part I, of the movie. I,
1: I love the shadow puppets. <laughs> I love the shadow puppets and I feel like I've, uh, I already uh, can tell that I think I felt a little differently about this movie than you did. But uh, for those of you that don't know, Candyman is ba- is a, it is a sequel uh, to the 1992 original, not the 1995 and 1999 further sequels. Those are completely forgotten, except for some elements like uh, Daniel Robitaille's name, but um, it's based on the 1992 original, which in turn was based on the uh, Clive Barker short story, The Forbidden. Now I rewatched the 1992 original, uh, which I love, before uh, doing this podcast. And I tried to read read the short story. Turns out it's not that short. Um, Oh no,
0: how short or how long is it?
1: (laughs) It's more like a novella. But but I started, I got about 10 pages in. I had always thought um, that the stories were very different. I knew, uh, so a big thing about Candyman in all the film versions is that in addition to being a story about the power of urban legends, Candyman uh, as a film series, uh, particularly up at the top, has a lot to say about race. Uh, I knew that in the original story, Candyman is not black. Uh, He's not really, his ethnicity is not particularly clear in the original story. Um, I assumed that meant that the Clive Barker story was very different. Hmm. From what I can tell, the Clive Barker story really follows the plot of the original movie. It's just set in London and much more specifically about class. Uh, when Bernard Rose, the British director made the 1992 version, moved it to Chicago for the 1992 film. He made Candyman black. He added the backstory that Candyman was a son of a slave who was lynched for falling in love with a white woman. Um, he added all that racial elements. Um, and this is, this movie keeps all of those and expands them. And I'm going to give my headline right up, right up top. I love everything this movie does on paper. And yet I didn't enjoy it.
0: <laughs> so I don't think we disagree that much.
1: I, well, the thing is, I respect so much what this movie is doing. This movie both works as a, a sequel it works on on paper it works as a sequel it works as a standalone film um, the friend i saw it with had never seen the original uh, we could talk to you about your experiences um, and it also works as an updating of the racial themes of the original film to a contemporary lens everything on paper that they do is so smart and intelligent. And that comes down to the people credited to the screenplay, which is uh, director Nia DaCosta, uh, executive producer Jordan Peele, and uh, Win Rosenfeld. Um, all of them uh, uh, have come up with so many brilliant ideas about how to make bring this story to 2021. However, this is a horror movie that I don't find frightening. <laughs> and I just don't find entertaining with the, it doesn't have an entertaining through line that the ori- the 1992 version does i rewatched that movie it holds up some elements are a little dated but for the most part it really holds up this movie even well uh <laughs> i was gonna say the year that it was supposed to come out that's not true but um <laughs> uh it doesn't really hold out i, I would assert that one little silly thing um uh, 9-11 when 9-11 happened for the next few years we saw movies that were produced before 9-11 and had little traces of the editing they had to do With, this movie shows us our first big example of a COVID re-editing where this movie is was supposed to come out in 2020 I'm sure it was supposed to be set in 2020 but as a title card tells us at the beginning no it's set in 2019 so don't worry no COVID to think about <laughs> that made me laugh really hard
0: yeah, uh, I mean, I, I'm totally fine with them ignoring COVID. My only, no,
1: I, I agree. I just thought, it, yeah. Yeah,
0: my only thing with movies ignoring COVID now, the movies that are produced during COVID, is that they kind of assumed that we would go back to the way things were before, you know? So it, I don't know, which I am not at this point that sure about. So I feel like those movies are going to be instantly dated by Mm -hmm. the fact that they pretend to exist in a world that might never exist again. Uh, I mean, this is not a criticism for Candyman. but They
1: they did not need to do a title card. I mean, they do have a flashback to the 70s and then they jumped forward to quote-unquote present day. And they could have called it present day, but they choose to call it 2019. Do you think they chose not to set it in... The vague present day of like, oh, okay, this is after COVID's been worked out, possibly because a lot of the discourse around the topics in this movie have changed so much since this movie was produced.
0: I mean that that is definitely a valid uh, thing, like a reason for it, especially considering how many topics they already cover. Like to mm-hmm. add another allegory into it, or like another element into it, I feel like would be too much. Though they do have 2020 elements in it, weirdly. The critic, uh, the art critic, I guess, listens to Fiona Apple, the album that came out in 2020. So they- Oh yeah,
1: good point. <laughs> so
0: they are still, but yeah, I don't know that there's a need for them to acknowledge, you know, COVID in any way in this movie. I don't think- No, any. I, I or mean like the, that. Or I don't think there's a reason for them you know, to include, you know, the last year's protest and all that. And the yeah, sort of the, I, yeah, go ahead.
1: I meant that they couldn't have. I'm just curious if they thought because this movie was very much produced before the George Floyd protests. And uh, do, do you think they chose to set it before then because they realized the discourse has changed so much since then, even though this movie still feels incredibly timely? Even not knowing that it was produced before uh, all the events of last June and the year that followed.
0: I mean, this is a very maybe nihilistic view of things, but I feel like outside of there being protests, there hasn't been, I'd imagine, a ton of substantial change for, you know, the people depicted in this movie and affected by that stuff. Uh, I think we'll talk about this at the end because the ending kind of sort of talks about a little bit about, you know, the police and all that. I feel like the experience probably of a black person today versus a black person pre-George Floyd is not that different because we didn't really change much as a no, society. we obviously, so, as, <laughs> as
1: with all issues, we didn't change anything. Uh, we talked about it a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think... But I mean specifically the characters would have referenced some of those ev- uh, elements. I, right. I was, this was more just a, a, an open thought and a good way of uh, highlighting the fact that yes, this is a podcast where two white people will be discussing a movie entirely about racial themes, uh, the spookiest of horror concepts at all. White people talking about this. Sorry. Uh, yeah, we're
0: going to be like that white lady who jumps into the bonfire. The what? <laughs> that white lady who jumps into the bonfire, who I assume was played by Virginia Madsen. Oh, Helen Lyle. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, Yeah, we're very much uh, like her. Well, that's the thing. I was curious re-watching um, the original, because I watched it after seeing this movie. I was curious to see how that movie balanced... Uh, balance the racial themes. The one major difference in the 1992 version is that it's a movie entirely by white creators and told from a white perspective. It's very much about a white character naively picking at kind of the scab of a uh, 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 racial horror and being uh, encapsulated into it. And there's all sorts of things that this movie does to contemporize that temporize, Doubt that's a word. But um, to m- bring that here, like that movie played with uncomfortable elements uh, like um, uh, imagery of uh, interracial uh, seduction. Um, whereas this movie plays with uncomfortable elements of employing faces that evoke to me like the photos of um, Emmett Till at his open casket funeral. Yeah. Um, faces of brutalized uh, black boys and men and uses them as as fear imagery, um, a horror imagery. So it does all those things differently, but this movie is of course made entirely by a black creative team. So that is a big difference. Uh, the other big difference I would say is that the major problem with this movie is it just has a Tony Todd shaped hole that they have not figured out how to fill.
0: So who was he in the original?
1: He was, can you believe it, Candyman.
0: (laughs) Well, what was the role of Candyman uh, in the sort of the older movie?
1: That is the major difference here. So much of this movie, they play upon, uh, cleverly play upon scenes from the original movie and spin them in new directions, making this a rewarding watch for fans of the original. Um, But the big difference is from moment one, while, while Candyman in the original does not have a ton of screen time, his presence is felt. He has the opening lines over voiceover. And it's delivered in Tony Todd's incredible Shakespearean, deep, seductive voice mm-hmm. with some like added uh, audio effects on it as well. And his language is so frightening. And the whole movie for the first half has this question of, is he real or is he not? And then when she seemingly disproves that he's not real... That's when he comes and, and starts causing a ruckus, mm-hmm. uh, causing some shit because he uh, needs to uh, reignite his legend because she disproved him. Um, he, we don't have that element here. And like so much of this movie, they were stuck with a, a, a tough problem and came up with what seemed like a brilliant solution. Tony Todd is too old to play Candyman. He's 66 years old. He's Uh, he's still a great actor. Well, he's still a great actor, but a lot of what makes that character work doesn't make sense with a 66-year-old man. Um, uh, He can still do the voice, and they do utilize him with computer de-aging, but they do it incredibly sparingly in a way that makes no sense for literally the last shot of the movie, so only to confuse new viewers who haven't seen the original... (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, at the end, I was like, who is this man? Because he's not Yahya Abdul-Mateen. He's not Siona Paris's dad. And he's not the laundromat guy. So who who is he?
1: If that element, that makes it such a bizarre... That's the one choice where I'm like, I don't know what they were thinking with that. But like, they don't have him throughout, and they know that they can't recast him. They'd have like a Nightmare on Elm Street remake uh, problem on their hands there. This is a role that as close as we are to the originals, that performance is so iconic that it would be a fool's errand to recast it. So they came up with a honestly brilliant solution. Their idea is that Candyman is no longer the personification, uh, a spirit who's like the personification of the suffering of one man You know, a one man who is lynched, who stands in for for you know, much uh, all sorts of racial suffering. He's literally now many the spirits of many black men and boys who were killed by white supremacy. This allows you to use Tony Todd sparingly. This allows you to be different from the original movie. This allows you to you know uh, multiply your franchise potential by three thousand. It Mm. allows you to do all these things. However, they don't really use that idea. To make, it, uh, um, to make it frightening because instead of like, we have this, this credit sequence with these incredible shadow puppets where we see stories of all these quote unquote candy men, all these uh, uh, black men and boys who are basically lynched and they all reemerge as the candy spirit. Why don't we see them throughout the movie? Instead, we get one figure as candy man the entire time who is this Sherman character who, in the complete opposite of the original film, literally never speaks. He just smiles. And as you know, a, um, a critic on pop culture, Happy Hour, which I was listening to, noted, it's a little iffy to make the uh, terrifying spirit of your movie uh, a man with a mental handicap, but sure, whatever. Um, my <laughs> major problem is that character just isn't, f- after his initial introduction, when he steps out of that wall, yeah. he is never frightening again. And that is just a hole in this movie. We don't have our major frightening presence. Mm-hmm. And it hurts this film as a horror movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess like my also my problem with this movie is that, I mean, I think to your point, I think for me it manifested in just not I don't think I understood what Candyman is. I was explained Mm. what it was, but then I was not shown it to like in the way that I was shown, it did not support necessarily what they said. You know what I mean? It's sort of, they explain, Oh, this is sort of what we, uh, sort of make up in order to sort of, uh, deal with the horrors of our daily existence. But, that didn't really manifest itself in any of the killings, I don't think. No. And so it's just, I guess my major beef with this movie or confusion with this movie, rather, is the fact that I think most horror movies, effective horror movies are allegories for something mm-hmm. concrete. And I feel like with this movie, they kept introducing sort of... They kept like reintroducing Candyman in different ways, but then not really following through in showing those ways in many of the killings, mm. uh, and so it was just ha- kind of hard to, I don't know, follow the allegory of that story and sort of uh, and be frightened by it because I. Every time they kind of, I don't know if it's a moving of the goalpost, but they almost like reshaped the goal, you know? Uh, and yeah, so I, yeah, I was also not really frightened, but I, my brain kept like working, trying to figure out how each killing kind of fits into the mold of what they set up and they never quite did. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So that was my kind of thing with this movie.
1: Rewatching the original. And I, I, I really wish I had gotten to um, uh, read the story in full. The the short story it's based on. Um, I was specifically looking at that idea. I was looking at how the original balanced its themes. And an issue that I found is that, at least the the original movie, all parts of this franchise are, a this film franchise are a little confused with what the metaphor exactly is Mm -hmm. um because there is an idea that line about it's a a people create this thing that they blame the hardships of their life on that is from the original movie that was in this movie there he's listening to a recording by virginia madsen's character and she's saying a dialogue from the first movie Mm -hmm. um it also might be a quote from the story again i'm i'm sorry to all the the barker freaks out there uh, do you think they call them Barker freaks? They um, call
0: themselves the Barking
1: Barkers. The Barking Barkers, <laughs> the cenobites. All you cenobites <laughs> out there. Um, uh, uh, that, like, there is a weird thing where in the first movie, okay, so he represents. He is a man killed by racism, white supremacy, and now maybe he represents the the ongoing unending pain and suffering that still continues to be caused by that and um and you know there's stuff like in that movie where uh when she gets spoiler she gets arrested at one point and they do purposefully do a scene where all the police officers arresting her are black and she's white and there is a scene that feels like a role reversal of Mm -hmm. her being falsely accused for something she didn't commit and treated hostily by the police. There's stuff like that. But then also the very first death in the first movie is the murder of two white kids. And I say kid because it seems like they're supposed to be teens, but Ted Raimi's one of them and he's clearly balding. It's a very weird opening scene, (laughs) but, but like that kind of confuses things in that movie. But that movie is so dreamlike that it all kind of works. This movie feels much more literal with its themes. And we lose, other than this incredible opening title sequence, uh, with these shots that are a reversal of the opening titles of the original, which is a helicopter shot looking down on Chicago. Uh. We're now looking up on the clouds and the skyscrapers. Um, Other people have pointed that out. I'm not the first person to notice that. Um,
0: Well, it seems like many of those things that you are now saying about the old movie could enhance one's viewing of this movie and it kind of sucks because like i to me i i was like oh this is a cool shot but knowing that it's a reference to that does make it richer knowing i feel like many of the things you've mentioned about the older movie does make this richer even the fact that the sort of the scary story that the brother tells them at the beginning is actually a rehash of or like a recap of the previous movie. A recap movie.
1: where he gets the, the the details wrong because it's now an urban legend. Right. Um,
0: but I, I don't know this as an audience yeah. member. And I feel like it is actually very relevant to our enjoyment of the movie, which I did not get.
1: Well, this will be a great teaser right now. See the original. It holds up. It's great. Um, <laughs> sure. But I, I think if this movie was working other than that, you it would be more like you just being like, Oh, cool. That is cool. I I think this movie is structured in a way that you don't need, you really don't need to have seen the original, except for that last shot. Super bizarre. But but anyway, like I was saying, like, oh God, I don't remember where. Other than that opening shot, this is not a dreamlike movie. So the fact that still the kind of exact metaphor of this character is very vague. Like in this movie, he seems to much more kill white people. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. He is now more a, a kind of avenging avenging spirit. Except why yeah. does he kill a little black girl? Yeah, exactly. In a, in a flashback that seems weirdly I think a lot was cut out. Uh um this I mean this is a tight movie. My major thing, what the fuck is going on with um uh Tayona Paris's father? What is that storyline?
0: Yeah, I think it it must be cut for time, which makes no sense. The movie is pretty short. I feel like they could have afforded to have it 15 minutes longer and explored her character more because there are many interesting scenes involving her in sort of the art world, like the whole scene with the director of the Art Institute. Uh, All that stuff seemed to, especially the way it's filmed and framed with like the slow zoom into her face, makes it seem like they're trying to show like how it triggers maybe like something from her past, like this conversation that they're having. And it seems to, in my head that it's probably something to do with her father, but yeah. it's not in the movie.
1: Well,
0: like it's,
1: it's It's implied from a comment that her brother makes that he says something like, just because an artist is having a mental breakdown, you don't have to be present or something like that, which to me, I think implied that her father was, and someone else says something too that implies this, that her father was also an artist and then his suicide was based on some kind of mental illness. And there is, I mean, obviously this is a movie that has a lot to say about art, Um, heavily about art. It's about the commodification of black pain in art it, all of that, uh, 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 black pain in art as consumed by a white audience. However, I don't, even if, which I think it was, her father was an artist, I don't know what that has to do with the movie. Right.
0: Well, it seemed like that part of the movie had a very, aside from the fact that the piece of art that he makes is, you know, an homage to Candyman, the mirror. I Who? feel like uh
1: uh her father?
0: No, no, no. Uh was so just yeah, her teen. father's art, right? No, no, no. I mean, yeah. I just mean the whole part of the yeah, movie yeah, yeah. that has to do with the commodification of art, which to me was, to be honest, the strongest part of the movie, mm-hmm. could also exist outside of Candyman, the horror movie, because it has like such a tangential relationship to it. Uh, yeah. So it just. It feels like this movie has a ton to say and it either needed more room and time to say it or it needed someone to, you know, kill their darlings and focus the plot in some way, at, at least in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I it's again, if you took out all these elements for first off, the creative team. You know, the creative team seems perfect for this. You, Jordan Peele has said for years how much he's a fan of the original and how much it's informed his work. Um, uh, if you take so many little details, okay, we're finally getting a Candyman, I think the first one that is entirely uh, a Black creative team. Um, it's the first one where the main character isn't a blonde woman. Um <laughs> Literally, it's out of four Candyman movies. It's the first one. Um, You take those details. Then details of their ideas. Like, just a little detail that's, that's only slightly hinted at and very subtly hinted at. The idea that this is a movie about the power and danger of urban legends. And you know what's kind of an urban legend and a myth? Police reports. Police reports are things that are created. And it's the story chosen by the teller. And that can have real danger brilliant connection that's not in the original. Mm-hmm. So smart, what a great way to connect it to the the themes of police brutality that are more heavily played up in this one. But there just isn't a through line that, there isn't a, an entertaining through line that connects all this. Mm-hmm. I think if the story itself was scarier, if there was a stronger Candyman figure tying all these scenes together, then we wouldn't mind that these are more these are more ideas that are thrown out there without fully explored i I like that this is a movie that is angry and just keeps throwing out ideas and finding ways to to, to take um to tie different elements of racial discourse to the candyman Mythos. I think that's exciting. Just yeah. make the candyman movie entertaining in addition
0: right. Well, especially, like, the point you brought up at the end when the scene where, uh, I f- yeah, I forget the character's name. God damn it. Sorry. Uh, William? Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, Brianna uh, gets uh, arrested. Like, that whole sequence when, uh, at the end, she, she calls the police. The police comes. They immediately shoot, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, and she gets arrested and then there's that very tense scene in the cop car where the cop is basically kind of like you said, you know, we could tell the story in two ways and in one way you walk away free and we walk away scot-free and in the other way I'm ruining your life. Um, it's very powerful and that was to me the scariest part of the whole movie. I feel like you can make a movie out of that. Like that, you know, you can tie that into the Candyman mythos, which I think they have been trying to do, but it just, this, like just that could be so strong to me. And the fact that it just came at the end and and it just gets resolved in, again, a way that I don't think flows from what they explained about Candyman. The fact that she now summons him And he only kills the bad guys, which does not seem to be what happens with Candyman as we've established with the little girl that gets killed. Uh, Yeah, it's just it wasn't as satisfying as it could have been.
1: Yeah, it's what's a weird thing where. uh, So the basic idea seems to be so Candyman in this one is. As, as the character William, played by uh, Coleman Domingo, says, he's not one man, he's the whole damn hive. Great line. Great line. Candyman's got a bee thing. Great way to set up your whole new Candyman's many people idea. <laughs> Love it. Love this script. <laughs> why, why don't we see... So he's now many people, even though we only see him as one character the entire movie, which is confusing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the idea is he is this. He is this. This. Why does Coleman Domingo's character want to bring bring the Candyman back? I get why the Candyman wants to come back. He is the pain and suffering of these uh, uh, these basic like modern day lynchings given given form. And he, I'm okay with the idea that he kills quote unquote good people. He kills quote unquote bad people. He is just racial ugliness and violence given form. He's, you know, he is suffering given form. I get that that would lash out in all directions, but why does Coleman Domingo, why, why does Anthony need to die in a similar situation for, I get why Candyman is like, okay, another member of the hive. The story continues. But why does Coleman Domingo want that to happen?
0: Also, how does he summon him? I still don't understand. Is that a thing you could just he, do?
1: He seems to summon him by creating the scenario for Anthony to be killed by the police. But, but that's it's it's weird. And like what is William's motivation cuz William accidentally got sherman killed in a similar thing and then later saw his sister get killed in a weirdly disconnected uh flashback and it was only because there was like a 70s radio in the background that i went oh this is william this is we're back in the 70s um right.
0: but also the Candyman was summoned previously who has been okay now i'm even more confused the candy man has been killing who killed the art director are we so like is anthony the one like killing is that the implication before who kills the art dealer and the critic and those teens and in, in the high school like who does the killing then my assumption was that candyman is already you know started happening
1: well i mean it seems like in the original movie which is, again is very dreamlike um uh, so you don't think about these things too hard, but it seems like the concept of the character, the character, the character is created by like racial suffering. He's a personification of the ugliness, the un, you know, the unhealed scar of racism in America. Um, but he wants to just continue. He's just a ghost who wants to continue his legend. Um, and he wants people to keep believing in him. That's how he exists. So in this movie, I get why the Candyman spirit would want to make these murders happen and then get Anthony killed. I don't understand why William wants that. And that whole sequence with William, as good an actor as Coleman Domingo is, that sequence is very bizarre. He's speaking very quickly and the whole thing is edited. It's not frightening. There's a a part where she's running through the basement and he's chasing her. And it is so, It is. this is the one part where I'm like, this part is bad. It is so <laughs> poorly edited. There's a part where she picks up something to hit him. This is Brianna. Yeah. Picks up uh, uh, something to hit him. And it's too heavy. And she makes a noise trying to lift it. So he finds out where she is. And then she whirls around with a pen and stabs him. Mm-hmm. Now, on paper... Great little horror-, horror sequence. Okay, she's got the upper hand. Oh, no, she's lost the upper hand, but she's got it back. Tension, yada, yada, yada. But it's so dark and it's edited so weirdly that I didn't understand what happened until after the fact. And that's <laughs> not frightening. I'm not going to be frightened going, oh, she was in danger. That's, that doesn't make me frightened as a film goer. <laughs>
0: Though, in that sequence, I guess it was briefly before that sequence, my favorite laugh line of the movie was her, like, opening the door to leading down to a stairwell mm-hmm. in the basement and being like, nope, <laughs> and closing it back again. Uh, that was kind of cool. But, right. yeah, I agree. I mean, it was... Yeah, it was such a brief scene, too. We didn't get that much of a chase at all, uh, which is fine, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, it was... There weren't a ton of, I guess, um, stereotypical horror movie uh, shenanigans as it happened with regards to the killings and stuff. Because there were so few of them and most of the most of the movie was not that scary at all.
1: There were about as many as the original and they were filled with these incredibly inventive shots that Nia DaCosta does. They go with the concept in this movie that Candyman is literally only visible through reflective surfaces. Like he's interacting with the real world, but he is only visible in, uh, uh, in reflective surfaces and they do all sorts of incredible shots. This one shot that zooms outside while a character is killed in a window Oh, that's uh, a great
0: scene. And she also, that's another sort of hive. Because yeah. she lives in one of those around Chicago yeah. buildings. Uh, that probably was it. probably my favorite. I like the fact that he floats around. There's a lot of things happening in the background. People being snatched from the frame in the background many times. Or, you know, the fact that Candyman is not visible unless at, at a surface means that when someone dies, it's just them dangling about. Uh, and all that stuff is very creative. I think this movie is super stylish. I I love looking at that movie. I, you know, I just wish I maybe understood it more. <laughs> so,
1: so that's my my question is: We love so much about this movie on paper. Why is it not scary? Oh, we love the shots of the kill scenes. That my my own my main idea is that Anthony never seems in danger. Um, Well, except
0: for a slowly decomposing hand.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's not great. And there's a point where they really have to switch protagonists to Brianna because Anthony never seems in danger. And maybe they didn't want to, you know, redo the original movie so much. But so many of the Candyman films have this concept where Candyman kills people and the protagonist who summons him is blamed for the deaths. But we never really do that here. No one's ever, like, Anthony keeps being with these characters, um, you know, uh, right before they're killed. But no one ever is like, Anthony, didn't you just have a fight with that guy? Like, you think that's where it's going to go, but it doesn't. So we don't have a tension or a sense of danger from Anthony. And this figure of the Sherman character, the only personification of Candyman we see until we see Tony Todd at the very end, just isn't physically frightening it's he's not much of a presence i think if we had taken the concept from the the credits that there are all these different Candyman, that and had anthony see a number of different Candyman types who were all kind of distinctive and frightening in their own way i think it would have hit at that idea more i think it would have helped clarify what's happening at the end a little more and i think it just would have been more frightening and i think get Tony Todd's voice in there mm-hmm. Tony Todd's voice lit- his literal speaking voice <laughs> is the most effective part of this film franchise uh-huh get it there his voice has not aged you already digitally distorted the voice in the original movies get in there and like if he was more of a presence if he cuz he speaks throughout the earlier movies we get an idea for what he wants and what he's trying to accomplish and it makes him a more imposing figure particularly because of the iconic performance delivering those lines i just think we had that stuff then hell when brianna's running through the fucking basement have her see a candy man and it's her dad boom that storyline is somehow now connected to the movie it's in <laughs> uh, i i just can't get over how much i don't know why that Maybe I'm just being fucking stupid. I just don't know why that the stuff with the father is in the movie.
0: No, I don't think I know either. And I've seen on Reddit people are also being confused. So I I was glad to feel that I wasn't alone. Also, another thing that could relate to that is, so I was watching this with my boyfriend, and he leans over to me at some point, and he's like, no one seems to care that people have died
1: <laughs> like yeah.
0: and that that is really i don't i don't think we sort of get a sense of the increasing menace of this character on these people's lives they just seem to kind of go on yeah. i mean even this guy has a decomposing hand and then a decomposing arm then a decomposing like half of his torso and it like there's a brief thing where a doctor seemingly discharges him from the hospital. I assume he runs away. It's not really in the movie, but I assume he just like runs away and refuses yeah. treatment. But it's just, there's no ongoing sense of dread. There's not an ongoing sense of danger because these people don't seem to really respond to the death that surrounds them.
1: I f- uh, I f- yeah. I think that's, intended as a satiric element you know i mean, this is a movie that it does not have particularly positive feelings towards the uh, art community but like i think the callousness with which those characters are treated are, are the callousness with which they display is intended as a critique of them you know these are characters who are commodifying suffering in general so why not when they look at um the death of a colleague why not have them instantly think about how it affects their careers So but, you
0: think Brianna and Anthony are supposed to be those characters too because that is their oh, some I of I, it-
1: I do I think oh, there God. is I think they are being uh held for criticism particularly in his art mm-hmm. um that being like and I think it's similar to how in the original movie, you know there were uh like the pompous professor i mentioned at the po- uh, beginning of this podcast there was a lot of parodying of um academia. Uh, po- pompous academia characters and she herself she is a naive woman who's condescendingly going into she lives in this uh upper class apartment building that literally was started from the same designs as the caprini green um projects but she she lives literally in the same design building but hers is 20 times more expensive yeah i saw a video about that
0: apparently like it's a real thing and what happened is that the city of chicago built the original Mm. building that this woman lives in as housing for low-income families, and then they were like, "It's too nice," so they sold it, and you know, uh, for developers to actually make it market-rate apartments, and then build something worse in Cabrini yeah. Green, which is kind of great.
1: And in I this mean, movie, by great,
0: I mean awful and terrible.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the original movie in moving it to Chicago, uh, Bernard Rose really used the reality of um. Uh, the racist segregation, like unofficial segregation of the city of the time um, to influence the story. And the new one does the same thing uh, in, re- in real life. The C- C- Cabrini-Green projects were knocked down. The area was heavily gentrified. Our, our main characters are um, young, uh, young up and coming uh, uh, black figures in the art world. They are living in a gentrified space. This is all laid out. This is all clear. Yeah. All these ideas are good. <laughs> God damn it. I wish the movie was better.
0: I will say my my favorite thing about the movie is how beautiful that apartment was. <laughs> I was just like, set more scenes in that apartment. I want to see more of it. I want more ideas for when I'm rich and have money.
1: <laughs> <Ugh>. It <laughs> anyway. is. I, it's, it's such a thing where I'm just like, I, like I, this is a, just a movie where I've I, it's where every piece seems to be the right choice, and then it just when you add them all together, it just doesn't work.
0: Yeah, sad. Let's pour Not- one out for Candyman.
1: <laughs> Let's pour one out for Candyman. We'll pour <laughs> a big, big honeycomb worth of honey out for Candyman. Oh boy. Um, but again, I think the movie's fascinating. I've told people to go see it. Um, I mean, but... I think
0: it elicits an interesting discussion, mm-hmm. which is, you know, more than we can say about m- most of the movies we. Oh, and there's <laughs> tons watch.
1: There's tons of interesting discourse that's already happened about this movie. And I would suggest, now that you've already wasted your time listening to 50 minutes of white people talking about the film, um, there's a lot of great writing by non white people, including. Uh, A review that I agree with a lot of criticism with, but she really did not like the film Um, on Vulture. uh, The film critic Angelica Jade Bastien uh, really takes the movie to task, um, both as a film and with its uh, racial commentary. Uh, That's an interesting. uh, I don't I like the movie more than she did, but definitely an interesting uh, read. Um, I'll check it out. Speaking of it, wh- how much we enjoyed the movie, let's give it a fucking grade.
0: Yay. All right. All
1: right, you ready? Sure. Wait, what, am I, what am I gonna say? Okay, I got it. All right. All right. Three, Three, two, two one. one.
0: B minus. B minus. Yay! Hey! Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, it's a, it's so weird to give a, a comparatively high grade to something that I really don't find, didn't think was very entertaining, but I mean, I I think the ideas are strong enough that it carried me through. It's a movie I definitely thought about for a lot afterwards.
0: Yeah. I think it's definitely also a movie where uh, I would be excited to see any of the people involved in other stuff Uh, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's see what Nia da Costa does next which I think is a Marvel movie which is the only way up for filmmakers now that's apparently how <laughs> that's how it works <laughs> uh but yeah I mean it was definitely entertaining to some extent mm-hmm. and beautiful to look at for all uh yeah. all of its running time
1: um all right Veronica, I know you've been on vacation, but you see any other uh, good movies uh, recently?
0: Oh, John, have I? Or
1: bad movies. Uh,
0: no, I actually saw two pretty good movies. What they are, I would say, probably diametrically opposed in terms of tone. But I saw, before I left, so this is kind of dated, but after our last recording, uh, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which... That movie is crazy and bonkers and delightful. Uh, if you enjoy the, you know, the c- comedy stylings of Kristen Wiig, please give it a shot. Um, it's, it's really, really silly and funny, and I really liked it. And I was on. So we went to Ireland and we were driving around a lot. So we were listening to an audiobook book about uh, Jonestown. Uh, and sort of the massacre there. And I then... Great book, by the way. Uh, It's called Jonestown Behinds the People's Temple, I think, or The True Story of the People's Temple. Uh, Really good. And then uh, I watched a PBS documentary movie that was made with footage of... uh, First off, interviews with surviving people because some people did survive because they kind of either... Uh, ran away before uh, everyone. I mean, mis- they, they did not drink Kool Aid; they drank cyanide. But uh, yeah. before that happened, that but- sucks. At least, <laughs> at
1: least at the the people's what was it the people's temple? What was yeah, that? the people's uh, temple. Yeah. At least they got a little sweetness with their poison.
0: Well, no, so they didn't. That's that's Jonestown. So the whole oh, that's,
1: oh, that's what I'm saying. At least Jonestown got some uh, sweetness. So they
0: didn't. So wait,
1: th- which one didn't? The Kool-Aid one got sweetness.
0: So so that's what I'm trying to say. There's no Kool-Aid at all. Like at so, either version. So Jonestown and the People's Temple is the same thing. Jonestown was the settlement that the People's Temple built in Guyana where they where uh
1: Oh, I'm sorry, I was fucking thinking of an entirely different uh, cult falling apart yes oh yeah
0: so yeah so Jim Jones was this pastor like the big thing which is very interesting and very conflicting is that it really started from a good place this is not a it did not start out as a cult as far as I can tell like uh or as far as anyone is arguing like they started uh, this guy really worked hard to integrate Indianapolis. Uh, his church was one of the first integrated churches where everyone was equal. Um, they were trying, they supported a lot of progressive causes once they moved to California. But that guy, just the hubris, whatever it is, really got to him. And then at the end, he sort of became this very vile and evil man who. Uh, but anyway, so this documentary, the sad and harrowing thing about it is that it uses a ton of footage because mm. it happened during a time where the media visited the the camp with a congressman because they heard like some families of people who were living there saying that they were being held there captive. Uh, and so there was this massive crew. Uh, well, not massive, but there were like some press there and... They filmed both before, like during the visit, before the people died and after. So you actually see just people like in color (laughs) lying down with their children and just like dead bodies everywhere. It's like it's a very it's a good documentary in the sense of just like getting an idea about what that was besides the like the drinking the Kool-Aid joke um uh, and, and also just like so sad just you feel so sad for these people who were just like happy dancing and one end and then just killed themselves for nothing <laughs> the other yeah uh,
1: i i've listened to audio recordings of some of the like debates between the people about whether or not they needed to kill themselves yeah have it if you cuz i guess it th- this all happened shortly after they Spoilers, shot the congressman?
0: Yeah, so what happened is that congressman shows up the day before, interviews a bunch of people, a bunch of people want to defect. Then uh, they come back the next day to actually get those people out, and even more people want to leave. And uh, Jim Jones sends some people to shoot the congressperson, and everyone basically. like They want to shoot everyone who is attempting to board that plane. Uh, and five this people so, died. It's
1: so insane to think, like, thinking about that happening now. Yeah. Like, can you imagine, like, random congressman gets killed by a cult? I and mean, not random congressman gets killed because he, you know, refuses to get <laughs> vaccines or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is from a different time, but I don't know that it necessarily cannot happen again. I feel like...
1: Oh, no. I <laughs> I meant it's crazy, like, to imagine, like, now imagining what, like, how you'd react if that? that oh, story for was sure. On the news. I
0: mean, it's a, it is a wild story, and to uh, yeah, I so yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of hard. It defies explanation because even as the fact that so the reason why the recordings exist is that because he recorded himself all the time. Uh, Jim Jones like lived in Jonestown in like basically by a radio. Transmitter and like everything he said would transmit all over at the camp at all hours of the day. By the way, so like Mm -hmm. he was like he became a crazy megalomaniac. and so that was probably part of the reason why that was recorded is because just everything was that he could potentially say was being recorded, Uh, and the fact that like you listen to people having quote unquote like reasonable discussion about the pros and cons of taking cyanide is insane. Uh, yeah it's just it's such a crazy story because yeah you don't the the kind of people who followed him were not sort of one type of like vulnerable being that you usually hear you know succumbing to these cults uh and there were for the most part very well-meaning people who actually took his message of you know he was a socialist so they were also wanted to kind of lead by example and becoming this exemplary like socialist society so that where people are equal and everything is shared so that it could be adapted by other, you know, uh, societies. Uh, and like his message of inclusion, like all these people seem to believe that stuff, but he kind of became a megalomaniac who once he sent the guy, uh, the guy to shoot the Senate or the Congressman, uh, he was like, yeah, so Someone killed the congressman, and now you know they're gonna come after us. So we have to do this to show them, and the these people believed him. and it's very sad.
1: So nowadays, um, do you think if Jim Jones was like uh, uh, at his peak today, do you think he would host a podcast, on Twitch stream, <laughs> or <laughs> oh, I think a, he would a be... sweet Instagram? Uh, uh,
0: I think he would be, you know, a multimedia conglomerate uh, okay. guy. I think they they had many avenues even then going. I think he wanted to be present in everything. I do wonder, one of the funniest, or I mean, not super funny, but like mm-hmm. a very like hucksterous thing that he di- used to do was um, he would like cure people's cancers. And the way that he would do it is by having an accomplice in the audience uh who would go uh to uh the bathroom and like pull out some like rotten chicken livers yeah. or chicken meat and then present it back as like oh I've been cured of this cancer. Uh I do wonder how those will happen. Uh yeah I, I feel clas- like that would classic be classic
1: faith healer stuff.
0: Yeah, but I feel like in the era of sort of debunking uh because people kind of are able and do so many things? I wonder. You can't
1: do, you can't do the pulling out chicken meat. Nowadays he would be selling health supplement pills. Yeah. He would be Uh, like a Joe
0: Rogan type. Yeah.
1: He'd be, that's how he would be doing it. Um, I, on the, uh, the great podcast, the QAnon anonymous, they did a recent episode. That's very sad about a, uh, a QAnon follower who, murdered his two children because he believed that they were turning into monsters, but they did a fascinating, uh, a deep dive into the church. He was a part of, um, and their social media presence. Wonderful. I think Jim Jones would be very impressed by their social media presence. Oh God. All right. Um, have you seen
0: anything good?
1: I saw, um, I watched, uh, uh, the film, uh, Annette, the film, Annette.
0: Uh, John, um, we said things you enjoyed watching.
1: Oh, well, I'll <laughs> say this. Annette, for those of you who don't know, is directed by um, uh, Carew. What's his first name? The director of Holy Motors. Um, Leo Carew. I, I don't speak French. Sorry, I don't know the pronunciation. The director of Holy Motors. Je the acclaimed pas, director of Holy Motors. Um, and it's a musical. Uh, uh, written based on a story and the music written by the uh, new wave experimental band Sparks, who, um, although I, I love a few of their songs, I don't know that much about. My apologies to Edgar Wright. Uh, it stars, <laughs> uh, it stars uh, Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. Um, and I'll say this, first five minutes, my favorite opening five minutes of any movie I've seen in years. I've never been more jazzed for a fucking movie than I was after the opening five minutes of this. I hated nearly the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> all the rest of it, uh, I'm just unfortunate. Some people might love it. I My major... <laughs> I mean, it sounds it sounds so dumb and reductive to say it. Right after I'm like, I love all the ideas in Candyman. Wasn't scary. No good. Um, I feel like I'm doing the same thing here. It's a musical with, after the first song, no entertaining songs. Oh, no. Every song is just banal dialogue repeated speak sung so it'd be like I'm talking about Annette the movie I saw I'm talking oh, so about Annette I saw it yesterday um
0: so it's kind of like is it all in song is it kind of like umbrellas oh yeah of it's Cherbourg? like an op-
1: it's like an opera
0: so it's like umbrellas of Cherbourg or something uh I I I'm have probably... not
1: seen that but let's say yes
0: I I don't like that. <laughs> I'm not a I mean, fan of sing song talking.
1: It be if there was just some more and, and there are are some fun it's visually thrilling in parts just not enough. Um there's multiple sequences that are very long and I know some people <laughs> have hated them, but it's uh Adam Driver's character is a famous stand up uh, in the antagonistic uh Louis CK mold um in for other reasons that happen <laughs> later in the movie, but um he has these uh these stand-up routines which are not like none of the movie is realistic so he's not delivering jokes it's more like he's delivering a like classical greek theater call and response to the audience oh as he's if like it's in greek
0: the choir <laughs> oh and of well, course yeah
1: no, like like, uh, like, I'm talking like Oedipus, like classic Greek play <laughs> where he, but like. No, I, I meant like it. in
0: the course of a Greek play. Is he like just yeah, doing yeah. like talkbacks?
1: Well, no, Like his stand-up routine where he'd be like, he'll come out and it, it feels very much like if you've ever seen an arena show for one of these standups where they come out and they're like, oh man, I'm so like, oh boy, I shouldn't have said that last one. And he'll say like <laughs> stuff like that. I don't know if I should say that last one. And the audience will go, S- no, uh, what's his name? Henry, say it. Henry, say it. And I I found, like, <laughs> intellectually, I was very amused by the translation of a shitty stand-up set to a piece of classical Greek theater. But, like, again, that goes on for 20 minutes, maybe. it's And it's just... I I this it I just didn't like it. I know some people love this movie. I know a lot of people don't like it. I wish I was in the former. I am afraid I'm in the latter.
0: I feel like I only know people who have not liked it, which is why I have not seen it. Uh but maybe maybe someday.
1: And then you know what because I want to be wholeheartedly positive. And I feel like while we only talk about movies here, you did mention a book and a book on tape. Um so I'm going to use Yeah, that. I listened
0: to a book on tape.
1: <laughs> You mentioned it. You mentioned it. It wasn't I, on
0: tape.
1: I thought you said while you were driving around, you listened to a book on tape.
0: An audiobook? It's not on a physical cassette tape. How oh old are you? Oh my God.
1: I, people still say book on tape? Who
0: says book on tape?
1: A lot of people. If I Your Twitter, grandma? Right, here we go. I'm going to go on Twitter right now and see how many people have used the term book on tape recently. Okay,
0: then Google how many people use the term audiobook.
1: Book on tape all right latest uh here's one from four minutes ago 25 minutes ago 43 minutes ago 49 minutes ago an hour ago okay. okay so multiple times in an hour now i'm gonna search audiobook this is a very scientific test that i'm doing
0: what are the tweets are they are only people you are there any people out there using the term audiobook
1: i mean a, or a book right on that, tape like certainly many more people are using audiobook But it's not like it's vanished from, like, book on tape has vanished from the face. People know what I fucking mean when I say it.
0: Sure. Uh, I just don't want you to make me out to be a book on tape listener.
1: Sorry. I'm an audio book listener. Uh, Veronica did not rent a car with a cassette player. Yes. To be clear, she absolutely did not. She never, never would.
0: In fact, my car was so advanced that it only had USB-C inputs. It didn't even have the standard USB input for, uh, you know, to connect your peripherals. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. advanced I, I was.
1: I anyway.
0: <laughs> what did you want to recommend,
1: Well, I was going to want to recommend is I feel like... Um, Uh, I want to make some quick recommends of another piece of media, uh, in this case, a video game. Because I would say, uh, I'm not gonna talk about this because it would take forever, but perhaps my favorite piece of art of the entirety of 2020 was I played the computer game Disco Elysium. That would be an impossible thing to talk about quickly, but anyone on the face of the earth, look it up. You should experience it. It's truly an amazing work of art. But the thing I experienced this week was I played the game Psychonauts 2 which is fucking excellent. And it is a game by uh, Tim Schafer and the people at Double Fine Studios. It's a sequel to a game from when I was in high school to date myself. Um, But it is, uh, I think we know, not people who don't play video games don't realize how good interactive narratives have gotten. And this is just a AAA platformer action game but the story, this is one of the funniest things I've experienced in uh, the past few months. And it's also one of the cleverest. It takes place like in this silly cartoon world where there are psychic super secret agents, the psychonauts, and what they do is they go into people's brains to find things out. And so the levels of the game are people's brains which are each completely different and dependent on the psyches of that character and specifically the issues they're dealing with. Um, This is one of the funniest games I've ever played. And it's also uh, uh, analyzes like things, uh, uh, all kinds of mental issues, both serious ones. Some of the characters are dealing with serious mental issues and also just like funny personality types. If this was a movie, this would be inside out, but better. Um, so if you are interested in any of that, if you like playing video games, you should absolutely fucking play it. It's incredible.
0: Sounds fun. Is it on Steam?
1: It is on uh, the vast majority of things. It's Yay. a big wide release. I, I do think it's on Steam. Ooh. I don't I don't play a lot of uh, computer games, so I don't know. Sorry, I'm a, a console hit. Wow. um but it's great it really is absolutely incredibly fun and i'll say this it has a mystery that i assumed that i had guessed uh the solution to and they do a very clever thing where it's uh the thing that most people who are most adults playing through it will probably think they've guessed the answer but uh it is kind of that answer but that is only halfway through and then there's another further twist that i completely did not expect and i was genuinely surprised and entertained by oh that
0: yep. sounds lovely you made me want to play this and i rarely play video games
1: it's it's fucking great you d- uh don't need to play the original it's great and has aged well but it's still a 15 year old game there's a lot of quality of life changes that are going to make it, that have happened in the years since, it'll make it a bit hard to go back to. But this game fully recaps that one. And you could also look up like a 10 minute video online that tells you everything you need to know. You can start with this one. Same way you could start with Candyman 2021. Even in both cases, you might be, you might have a richer experience if you've been with the original. All right. Okay. So... <laughs>
0: On that
1: what's, note, on that note, what's uh what's coming up? I know, um, we we haven't done that many old movies recently. We've been doing well. Lot of
0: new movies. Yeah, I feel like my vacation spared us, um having to rewatch American Pie.
1: Too. Oh right, we promised that to our <laughs> listeners, and then someone went to Ireland.
0: Someone, someone spared us. Uh, <laughs> all right, so we could potentially do. The Lion King 3D re-release, which was the number one movie in 2011,
1: we could not do that. That would, neither of us have 3D televisions. Shockingly enough,
0: yeah. I mean, is that I feel like that was a blip that happened. And
1: my brother, my brother bought one, and it's to this day uh, in the family. We joke about it being one of the dumbest purchases of all time. Wow. Uh,
0: uh, something named oh, interesting. There's a movie named Hardball from 2001, and it takes place in the Cabrini Green housing projects in Chicago. Oh, is that
1: the Keanu Reeves movie?
0: Uh, let, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, is it like. No, that's Rollerball. No, it's
1: Hardball. It? Yeah, it's, it's basically uh, Bad News Bears, but. Uh, bad
0: oh, all right. Uh, yeah. Well, so that movie. Uh, and then. We could do 9099's Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Uh,
1: I watched that last year. That's a fascinating film.
0: And uh, let's see. I I will have to uh, uh, do some digging around for the number one movie in the box office in the year of our Lord,
1: 1980. Well... One. We'll we'll do something. We'll do something.
0: Hold on, I'm almost there. Entertain the audience. <laughs> uh, oh, Raiders of the Lost Ark.
1: <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll say this: Freddy's Dead has a Roseanne Barr, Tom Arnold cameo. I will say this: they were still Raiders a of
0: the Lost Ark does not have a Roseanne Barr, Tom Arnold cameo.
1: <laughs> well, we'll be back soon. I'm going to lobby for Freddy's Dead, <laughs> the less talked about film. But that's true. We'll, we'll see what we come back with.
0: Maybe we'll watch the number one movie in the box office today. Give the bo- the time machine another uh,
1: Either that or yeah, we'll just be talking about fucking Shang-Chi. Who knows? Um, but what I do know is that we got to get out of here. I'm John.
0: I'm Veronica. And we're out of here. <laughs> dude, dude.